LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a Curriculum Development Specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Kristen Zeman and Steve Stevens about the resources that responders will need as they move forward after a crisis. Co-hosting the podcast with me today is Roy Bethke, who is a past guest of the podcast. He is an LSU NCBRT subject matter expert and is a retired deputy police chief in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Steve Stevens is currently the police chief in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. He is a past president of the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police, and he currently serves as the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Kristen Zeman is the chief of police of the Aurora, Illinois Police Department, and is the Vice President at-Large of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Thank you to Kristen and Steve for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. As we sort of move into a new normal um, in the midst of all these events, what are the resources that law enforcement officers will need the most moving forward? Wow. Um, Well, if you want to call this a resource, it's support. Um, They need support from leadership. Tell them that, like Kristen said earlier, um, they're the same cop today that they were two, three weeks ago, um, and they can't forget that. A lot of police officers are questioning themselves right now on what they're doing. Should I continue making traffic stops? Should I continue doing this? And like, and, and they're they're worried. Um, so they need support. They need support from their peers. They need support from their supervisors. They need support from their uh, police chief sheriff, state police director, Um, but a lot of them are curious what kind of support they're going to get from their elected leadership in their communities, because we see some incidents around the country that officers are wondering about whether this incident was a knee-jerk reaction to fire police officers or uh, fire the police chief. Um, Is it done for political reasons or is it done with due cause? And uh, man, I, I, my chief might support me, but are my elected leaders going to support me as well? And so I think that's a message that uh, we need to get all through our departments, through our line officers, that you have our support. Um, the cop you were two weeks ago is the same cop you are now. We have a culture that we've developed in our agency uh, that we value every person here and the work that they do. And I think that message need to be conveyed strongly. I absolutely agree. Um, we'll start you with support and, and I'll give you a great example of how, and, and I'm, this is not a bash on the media, although maybe it is a little, um, but so for example, and I love journalists and, and great journalists that tell good stories, but here's what has happened um, is that I've asked um, our community and our, our media uh, to, um, it, you, full transparency. Would you, you know, you go ahead and FOIA all of our disciplinary records, and you will see that officers are being held accountable for wrongdoing. And uh, that fell on deaf ears. But every every community meeting I went to, you know, I touted our our 
numbers and I invited them, you know, here is, is where, you know, where you can find all this information. Not one person took me up on that and the media really just, you know, ignored that. And now, um, you know, we had an, an incident of excessive force with a police officer that happened last year. And I invited the media to, you know, to FOIA that and they did, and they did not report a story whatsoever, but it was a white officer and it was a, uh, a black offender uh, where that officer used uh, excessive force. That officer was disciplined. Um, it did not rise to the level of termination, but we have contract issues and people don't understand that, um, but it did not rise to that level. However, it, that officer was disciplined swiftly and harshly and nobody said a word about it, but now the media uh, just reported that story. And I was like, that happened, you know, that long ago, but now that stays um, you know, right in the front and center and it fits the narrative. And it and the, the, the headline literally said, you know, um, white officer, I think like, you know, beats up black offender. And, you know, and I, and I thought that was not, you know, when I said, hey, report that, this, I wanna be transparent, you know? And so now the officers are having to, you know, relive all of these things that, that to me, they have been held accountable and I have zero tolerance for that. And that's why it was handled swiftly. So, you know, I think that that support then comes in, you know, because this is now it is, it's, it's just, it's going to sell a, a better story, right. You know, to, to air all of the stuff that has happened and that has been dealt with, but that's our cross to bear. We have to get through that, but that's where that support comes in. Um, and I agree, support from elected officials. One of the things when I spoke with uh, with my department over the last uh, few weeks has been, do we have the support of our elected officials? Uh, we had a couple aldermen coming out um, and they were saying that they've been abused by our police department. And this is was news to us, We, you know, and I'm not even sure it was exactly true in that moment. And and um, I have, we've worked with these aldermen um, shoulder to shoulder. The officers have helped them, you know, clean up their wards and not one time have they have they had a complaint but then they got on a microphone and they said that they have been um you know harassed by the police i'm not even sure if it was our police but it certainly made it seem like that so our officers are like what what why are elected officials not backing us and so um mayors across the nation have um right now have a very difficult job i've spoken to my mayor who is our one of our biggest fans however the officers are still questioning whether um, that he supports them. And so, you know, and I think, and he, I, I know is planning on speaking to the officers to tell them, you know, they, that he does support them. So that's, that is where, what, what we need, but also is as far as operationally training, 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 we have to continue the high level of training for our officers. And I say that specifically because going back to the pandemic, many of our jurisdictions, our cities have lost revenue um, because of COVID. And they have asked us to, they've asked me, my my department, my city has asked me to uh, complete a decrement list of 20%. And what they, what are one of our biggest training or one of our biggest budget items is this training. And I said, you will have to pry training um, out of my cold dead hands, because that is why we don't have the incidents that other that other cities are having. That's why, you know, uh, we don't have, you know, wrongful death suits because we put our officers through six mandatory trainings per year that include de-escalation um, and responding to these kinds of events. And, and, and if you eliminate training, then, you know, you might as well uh, agree to signing checks for lawsuits um, on the other end. So you have to invest in your police officers 
for uh, CIT training, de-escalation training, um, and that is going forward what we have to continue to do because so many police departments just, you know, you go through the academy and that's it. There's no more training. And when I say training, I don't mean watch a video and do this. I mean scenario-based experiential training where officers are running into, you know, where their heart's palpitating, even though it's, it's a, you know, it's, even though it's simulated where they feel the fear and the effects of, of, of what it is like going into that, because I firmly believe that you play like you practice. And some of the incidents that we're seeing the headlines where officers are, are, are there, where these deaths are occurring is because they are not properly trained. So we have to invest and continue to invest in our police officers, the training that they need. If I can add, so just the on the training piece in particular, considering that's what NCBRT, NCBRT does, the opportunity to create evidence-based scenario training, I think is absolutely vital in what we're trying to accomplish. The example that I often use is generally in law enforcement, we separate uh, training on different tools that we have. So for example, one day might be firearms training, one day might be uh, pepper spray training, one day might be taser training, one day might be defensive tactics. And you think about defensive tactics, we you know, often put people in these red suits uh, when, when officers are assigned to go in and solve that problem. And you know they open the door and there's a person at the end of the room, backside of the room that's in a red suit. Now, unless I'm missing something, there's two possible outcomes. Uh, you're either going to fight with the person in the red suit or you're gonna talk the person to the red suit into coming uh, to giving up. Um, I've been on, I don't know, probably a thousand domestics in my life and I've never opened the door gone into a house with a dude with a red suit uh, at the other side. And the other piece of that is when I go into that room in a domestic, I have all of my tools that I need to make decisions through. So that is a much more complex series of decisions. And to Kristen's point, these are highly complex, very, very challenging situations police officers are walking into. You think about the George Floyd incident in particular. I don't know of a police leader, police officer, police trainer anywhere, anywhere that in any way thinks that what happened to George Floyd was acceptable. Where in the process did we as a profession fail in creating opportunities for other people to intervene? And where did we and where should we be teaching them how to intervene? properly and creating that as a culture. So I think from an evidence-based standpoint, we need to look at those things and do a better job and invest in, in this profession. Uh, and it is a money conversation. The defunding the police movement is a fascinating concept uh, that really needs a better explanation and understanding. We talked a little bit about this, about checking in on officers uh, periodically. So do you think that departments should be creating policies and procedures for these things like checking in, making sure everybody is okay, everybody is um, mentally well, and what are the challenges in creating these kinds of policies? Well, I think one of the best policies you can policies you can have, in whatever uh, format you want to use it in, you have to have some type of early warning system for all of your officers, and that's any type of platform or program that uh, you know, if there's a citizen complaint, that has to go in there, no matter how minor. Then if the officer responds to a fatal crash, that should go in there. If the officer responds to a suicide or a child molestation call, that should go in there because all of those things build up and affect an officer. And so you should have some type of robust early warning system that when enough of these incidents come about, the red flag pops up and says, it's time for me to call this officer in and have a conversation. How you doing? 
Uh, is everything okay at work? Is everything okay at home? Um, you have to have that kind of system. Otherwise, you're just winging it. And what's going to happen is you're going to be responding after something bad happens instead of trying to prepare and discuss things before something bad happens. I could not agree more. And there's even a more complex issue on top of that, and that is contracts. So right now, the only way that I can send an officer for fitness for duty is for cause, for reasonable suspicion, as it were, where, as to Steve's point, there's perhaps a red flag shows up, where there's been a, you know, a number of incidents. Um, but what about those ones who don't, you know, don't make that radar, right? There's nothing that really comes up, but they're silently suffering. And so, so right now, the only way that anyone can go for a psychological evaluation is if, if someone reports something to me where perhaps another peer officer or a supervisor says, hey, this officer, you know, this, this is what I observed and it wasn't quite right. And even with that, that can get a little touchy because it has to be, you know, there, there, there has to be something of substance there. Um, and so I am in full support of a mandatory um, psychological evaluation every year. And this kind of goes back to my earlier point is that most of us will go, nah, I don't need it, you know, and, and then having to put the boot in, in, you know, in someone and push them in there is great. But some people just simply will not do it. They will be defiant. So if it's forced upon them, then um, I honestly believe that that would make that would truly start to change the culture because I believe once people got in that room, they would go, oh, okay, that wasn't so bad. Or, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was, you know, I was, I was grappling with that. Or I might even have a little PTSD um, or, you know, something. But I don't think that, I, I think that sometimes when people left to their own accord um, will not do that. And then I liken it to, it's a terrible analogy, but it's like seatbelts, right? You know, I mean, you know, people didn't wear seatbelts and there were a lot of fatalities and crashes. So the government had to come in and make it a law to, you know, put a seatbelt on. What did that do? It saved lives. So I, I, that analogy, you know, it's, it's resonates with me is because even though they don't want to do it, I would truly like to force them to do it. And, and then, then I true, I really do believe it would save some lives or a lot of mental health issues that our officers are experiencing. Uh, but we have to sit down with unions and unions have to agree to that. And right now by contract, you know, I can't, uh, you know, I don't have uh, that leverage right now. So I think we have to have conversations with, with our, our unions as well. Uh, I couldn't agree more, Kristen. And I've, uh, as a chief, I think I've sent four or five officers for fitness for duty. Uh, I had to order every one of them. And every one of those was a struggle uh, because it was a struggle documenting everything leading up to the feeling that I think this officer should go for a fitness for duty evaluation, um, working with the uh, collective bargaining group. It was a struggle and it shouldn't have to be because it not only saves lives, but on the lower end, it saves discipline because uh, you're making sure officers are being checked up on every year. Yeah, if I can just add, I mean, this is a stigma conversation still, right? Historically, uh, law enforcement as a profession has used fitness for duty uh, when there's a problem or when we think that there's a problem. So we've kind of used that. We, we've used uh, many human resources uh, departments at, at municipal government levels in particular have employee assistance programs, EAP programs, 
we're talking about something completely different, I think. And Kristen, I'm curious your take, especially on the heels uh, of the, the mass shooting that you had. And I know we talked about critical incident st stress debriefing in the past. And what role, if any, uh, at your department or for the profession do you see for formal peer support, peer-to-peer -peer type support programs? And how do we do a better job of implementing them if you think they're helpful? I absolutely think they're helpful. I think it's one tool of many tools. And so we, you know, we we had some issues with starting a peer support because there were um, some supervisors that were involved in this peer group. And, and, and then it became this issue with our unions is that if a police officer who is a patrol officer goes to a sergeant and says, I have a problem, I drove drunk or I showed up drunk to work or um, then the, the sergeant now has a duty to report as a supervisor. So now you're looking at a discipline issue. So we really have to, we have to get through all of that. Um, but as far as peer officer, peer to peer, um, I believe it is very helpful, but I also recognize that there are some people that don't want to reach out to anyone in their department. They want that uh, anonymity. So not only do we have a peer group, but then we also have um, uh, resources where we can send them to, you know, a regional uh, peer support group that is not part of our department. But then even on top of that, I have an app uh, we purchased uh, and, and partnered with um, an app called You Never Walk Alone, and it's web-based and app-based, and a police officer can pick up their cell phone and they can literally go onto this app and they can say, I need help, and they can speak with someone uh, via text or via phone, and it's either a police officer on the other end of it or a mental health professional, and they get to choose. So I think that there needs to be, you know, layers upon layers because it depends on that individual. Um, it depends even on their circle of of friends or, or and their support system at home, right? You know, I mean, uh, many people are fortunate to have a partner um, or close friends in their lives where they can say, gosh, I'm, I'm struggling. You know, I would have no problem reaching out to Steve and saying, I'm having a really hard day or to you, Roy. I mean, that's, you know, but that's who I am. But there are some people that just, they cannot get to that point to ask for help. And so there's got to be different ways um, where different, you know, different mechanisms where people can connect in the way that they feel the most comfortable in doing so. Yeah, I would only add that, you know, on this conversation, there's one no one magic answer. Uh, people are touting peer support, outstanding. People are touting police social workers, equally outstanding. A police chaplain program, EAP. But uh, you know what? Have them all. Because an officer might be comfortable going to a peer and somebody else may be comfortable going to your police social worker. Somebody else may want to just chat with a police chaplain. So you can't just have one avenue um, because people are comfortable with, uh, with different levels of help. As we wrap up our conversation, um, just want to talk about what you think the future of the law enforcement profession looks like. You know, I, I honestly, I can tell you what I want it to look like, um, you know, what my prediction is. And, you know, but this, what I want it to look like has not changed over, you know, the, just because of the recent events that have happened. I mean, I think that's where people are like, you know, where do we go from here? Well, progressive agencies have been putting these processes into place that truly um, build trust and transparency and legitimacy um, for many years. I mean, you know, I'm not going to use any agencies or, you know, or, or point to any, but there are a lot of agencies that are being placed under a consent decree who are, are being, they're being forced to implement, you know, um, counting use of force incidents, um, being forced to have transparency. 
we've already done that before someone made us do it, you know? And so I think that, that the profession is evolving and here's the, where I'd like to see it. My utopia is that it evolves into less of the mirrored sunglasses and attitude, you know, kind of I'm a cop and, you know, it's this machismo thing into, you know, where, and again, I, I go back to the guardians and warriors where we are, we are guardians first. Um, but we are, we are, putting people into the profession, bringing people into the profession, uh, not just because they have a military background, because that's what it used to be as law enforcement. If you were military, then you automatically, that was your career that you went into law enforcement. And we've started to realize over the years that bringing women into law enforcement, which by the way, is not, <laughs> it's, we're, we're, we're progressive. But when I came on the job in 1994, uh, again, we are the second largest agency in, in my state. And there was not one female in rank. You know, not one woman represented a, a rank in my department, and that was in 1994. So we have made a lot of progress over the years, but by bringing in uh, diversity, by bringing in um, more women and more um, people that represent our community, and also, dare I say, and, and this is this phrase, relaxing the standards does, does not mean um, dropping standards, but for what, what I mean by that is we need to look at our recruitment and hiring. And um, before, if anyone had, um, you know, any kind of, of drug use, so even if you experimented, you know, with marijuana, you were automatically cut off the list. Um, we recently hired a person who had, um, who had, uh, had a, a suicide attempt, but again, had got the help. And I love Steve's point earlier. So I'd rather have that officer on the job who has been through hell and back, who can probably relate to people on the street because they've had that experience. And so, but in our hiring recruitment, we have a lot of, um, we, we didn't, we, uh, did not let any officers have, uh, tattoos. And I've recently relaxed that policy because oh my gosh, you have to get, you know, with, with the changing time is that police officers with tattoos does not make them, um, you know, ineligible to be a police officer, to, you know, to have exposed tattoos. There are so many compassionate and wonderful communicators um, that have that. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spewing a lot of stuff here, but I think that the utopia is that the police have to more represent our community. And, but we also still have to remember that this job is, no, it's, law enforcement you know it's a, it's not a sexy thing to do is to have to tell people you know i mean it's, it's it's to be that person but we have to do that but i believe that that where we go from here is that we can do it with humanity and i think we can do it with human dignity and respect for all members of our community and that's where i see this i see an evolution of policing in that you know to be more human um and but all of that again comes with training and also you know recruiting people who are willing to run towards gunfire so it's complex finding that special human that can do both of those things um but that's what i would like to see well similar with me um First thing I'd like to see is what something I mentioned earlier is I'd like to see our state and federal governments um, start funding social services the way it used to be. And, um, and I'll go beyond just funding social services, but, and it's interesting, some of the conversations I've had with, with uh, some groups who are kind of anti-police and saying, well, you should do this. And I'm like, wait, yeah, we actually agree on more things than you think we do. Uh, again, three, four years ago, I, I hired a full-time police social worker. I would have never thought 10, 20 years ago that the police department would have a full-time civilian police social worker. And guess what? I wish I had three more. 
Um, I wish I had that funding to hire more because this is what a lot of the rhetoric is right now. Well, you should have you know, your rapid response social worker. Okay, but how about co-responding? How about you have a social worker respond with a police officer to a domestic disturbance that's not violent, things like that. Um, but that's going to take funding. And of course, defunding the police is not going to work. Um, so I would like to see um, our governments fund social services the way they used to. And part of that means funding police departments who work with social services uh, like I believe we should. Um, I also believe that um, probably of the 18,500 law enforcement agencies in this country, 17,642 of them are doing an awesome job. They have all these policies in place that people are complaining about right now. They do the training that people say they should be doing. We're doing these things. Most people don't know that. But the other two to three or four percent of law enforcement agencies that aren't, um, they need to step up to the plate. And, you know, he wish there were a database that says, okay, of these 25 things, how many police departments are doing it? Kind of like 21st century policing. I'd like to know how many law enforcement agencies meet those tenets and pillars of 21st century policing and which ones are not. Um, but, you know, do we have some work to do? Sure we do. Um, I think we're going to see difficulty in recruiting police officers over the next year or so. Um, you know, some some cities, uh, they want their police officers to be Irish setters. Um, but they also want to teach the Irish setter to bite if they need to. Well, you know, you can teach an Irish setter to bite, but eventually you take away what really makes them an Irish setter. So what do you really want? Uh, do you want the fluffy dog or do you want the pit bull when you have an active shooter? Make up your mind. Um, so you have to be willing to understand that police officers need to be all these things. They need to be the guardian and they need to be the warrior. But also understand that it's not just easy to flip that switch back and forth from guardian to warrior back to guardian again. Um, so it's not that simple. Um, but I think we're uh, I think we're going to have a little difficulty recruiting. And I think uh, that's where we as a profession need to step up to the plate and say, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to join our profession and help uh, change the way we're going to look in the future. So I think the profession is going to look a lot more like a, a, a better profession in that I think evidence and science and humanity are going to become increasingly important. I think they've always been important. I think sometimes we've strayed. Back to Kristen's example about the, the hiring process and backgrounds. Uh, when I had the good fortune to work with Steve uh, at Buffalo Grove and took over the back oversight of the background process, uh, we had a background investigator who supplied us with a report, someone who had done something that they shouldn't have done. It was clearly illegal. They did it as a teenager, uh, but they were very forthright and said, I did it. I'd never do it again. Here's the reason why. Um, and the recommendation from the background investigator was not to hire this person. Steve and I ended up in a really long conversation and, and uh, we could go down all sorts of avenues, but we ended up giving this young man an opportunity and I'll never forget the day I retired. Uh, he had just finished field training, was on the street on his own, was making a huge impact on the community and the organization. And he came in and thanked me and I thought to myself, I very much feel the same as he did. Somebody took a chance on me. I was a high school dropout, didn't have an associate's degree. 
uh, and had not someone not been willing to take that chance on me, I wouldn't have been able to serve in this profession. And that's a fascinating conversation when we oversimplify what actually makes a good good police officer. And again, some of that is community specific. Uh, what I will tell you is that I'm absolutely filled with hope about the profession, because what I know for sure is that there are people like Kristen Zeman, Steve Cass Stevens, and many other people like them at the forefront of what are the most important conversations we've ever had as a profession. Uh, so I am really, really hopeful that the future looks really bright for us. Thank you to Kristen and Steve for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. Thanks also to Roy for co-hosting this series with us and offering his insight as well. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you again next week.